This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country. You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong. They source all these ingredients, they do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary person who inspires me with what they do in their everyday life. Today, I have the pleasure of having Kiki Aranita. We've gotten to know each other over the last few years through some delicious food and also some tough times were in COVID. Um, Kiki, I'm so happy to have you here to talk about your traditions, your food, your art, your education. So much to discuss. Thank you for having me. So, you know, when we first hopped on the phone a while ago, I got to learn a little bit about your background. First, your background both in growing up in Hong Kong and then your time in Hawaii, and then your massive educational background. But let's start with your growing up. I'd love to hear a little bit about your family on, on both sides, because they seem to have influenced so much of what you're doing today with Poi Dog Philly. Yes, um, absolutely. So I am half from Hawaii and half from Hong Kong, although I was born in New York because my parents were working in New York at the time. And I didn't spend a whole lot of time there as a younger child, but I did move back there in college. So I went to NYU and that is pretty much my only tie to New York. My dad's family has been in Hawaii for five generations now, and he met my mom when she was a student at the University of Hawaii, and she had a very long uh, route to get there, but that is essentially how somebody from Hawaii and from Hong Kong exists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> five generations in Hawaii, that's extraordinary. I mean, you tell some amazing stories about your grandfather. And can you just tell us a little bit about that family in Hawaii? Yeah, my family in Hawaii is huge. Like the last time, just like on my grandmother's side of the family, that we had a proper family reunion when I was a kid. I remember we rented out a baseball diamond. And I think there were 500 people there. Um, and the thing that I love about the Aranita side is everybody's different. Um, and that very much informed the background of poi dog. Uh, poi dog is a pigeon term that means uh, mixed breed or mutt. And the family is very, very, very blended, very mixed. So the culinary influences that I had uh, growing up there are extremely vast. 
And this is a really common thing in local Hawaii families to have like Japanese aunties, you have Okinawan aunties, you have like Hawaiian uncles and um, like a very significant Portuguese influence as well. You grow up on like a lot of like Filipino food. Like as a kid, you don't pause and think about like, I am eating Japanese food. I am eating Chinese food. I'm eating, you know, this particular style of cooking. It's more like everything is just subsumed under what we now call uh, local food. So a family that includes potentially 500 people, how does it even work? Like, do you get to know your relatives? You know, do you stick with like the smaller family? Like my family is tiny. My mother was an only child. My father pretty much had one sister. Like I have no family. So the notion of 500 is mind boggling to me, but also very, very intriguing. Um, I'm very close to my first cousins. Last time I counted, I think I have 28 of them, just like first cousins, which is actually not that many because my dad was one of seven and my mom was one of 11 kids. So it's really actually not that many. But when we go to like bigger family reunions or if like other branches of the family come together, we always have to like identify ourselves. So they're like, oh, which one are you? And I'm like, I'm Kiki, Jeffrey's daughter. You have to like go through like the entire line of how you're related. But a lot of like big Thanksgivings, they're like, who are you? I'm like, excuse me while I go back several generations. You spent a lot of your time growing up in Hong Kong, actually, as well, right? You, you call yourself a, a handover kid. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um. So I grew up in both places. My younger childhood, I was in Hawaii. And then like summers and winters, we spent in Hong Kong. And then when we properly moved to Hong Kong uh, before the handover, I spent like summers and winters back in Hawaii. So I have recently been like revisiting this idea of being a handover kid with a bunch of other uh, girls that I went to middle school and high school with. And the more that we talk about it, like the more we see like how growing up in Hong Kong at this particular time, how like how much it has influenced like our background, our worldviews, our various identity crises over the years. Just to like take away like the names of places for a second, like can you imagine growing up in a country and then going away to college, and then when you come back to the same place, it's under a different flag and a different government, but still called the same thing. It's inconceivable, really. So how how has it affected you? I mean, you're, you're saying that it affected you in terms of identity and in just the way you think about yourself. To backtrack a little bit more, I went to international school in Hong Kong. And at international school, I went to two different ones. Uh, I went to a British one, and then I went to an American one. And international school means that you're educated in the system of a different country. So when I was like 12, 13, 14, we pretty much had the curriculum of British school children. And all throughout this time and in high school, all of our teachers are like talking about us as if we are some kind of strange beast. And they called us third culture kids because we belong to um, a culture that our parents didn't necessarily belong to. And this idea, I think, was compounded by Hong Kong's particularly strange position. In some ways, we're just like, oh, yeah, we're just like British school children. The first school that I went to really drilled this into our heads. Like we didn't learn any Chinese history uh, we were only allowed to speak Chinese during Chinese class, and we were only allowed to speak Mandarin during Chinese class. We were not allowed to speak Cantonese in the hallways. So it was very, very much like a very strict uh, British education. At the same time, like you speak Cantonese like in the lunch line, you eat Chinese food in the cafeteria or in the canteen. And it's unavoidable, the fact that you live in Hong Kong. So you're kind of in this like suspended reality. 
And I would say that a lot of my like middle school and high school years were spent in this sort of suspended reality of everything. And I feel like like everybody that I'm really, really close to from my childhood is like half this, half that, living somewhere totally that has nothing to do with their upbringing. And um, but we all seem to like suffer the same displacement and like experience the same need to make sense of what we know to be part of our identities or to like latch on to particular aspects of our identities. We never thought like of Hong Kong as like a place where we have to like celebrate where we're from because a lot of us have tenuous ties to Hong Kong, my family included, like we're not actually Cantonese. My family fled there after the Japanese invaded Nanjing where uh, we're originally from um, and then the communism. But yeah, we didn't really feel the need to like proclaim that, hey, we were Hong Kong kids. We grew up there. It's part of who we are. Until the last few years with first the Occupy Hong Kong movement, the Umbrella movement and everything that has put Hong Kong on the page, on the front page of newspapers. Like I never, ever would have thought that like my little Hong Kong island would be front page news on the New York Times. Like it was so shocking to me when that first happened. And what is your feeling now when Hong Kong is going through such a difficult time? The thing that we feel most is like incredible sadness for the sort of free place that we grew up in, because like Hong Kong had a lot of freedoms that the rest of China never experienced. And we see those freedoms at first in place for, I would say, like 15 years and then to have them rapidly erode um, is really, really heartbreaking. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking even being someone who has no connection the, the way you have, having obviously lived there. And do you still have family that's in Hong Kong? Yeah, so almost my entire Chinese side is in Hong Kong. I have a few uh, family members scattered in California. I'm not nearly as close to them because I didn't spend any time on the U.S. mainland at all as a kid um, after we left when I was like, six years old. The only time I even like went to the mainland US as a kid was to go to Disneyland for a week. When I moved here as an adult, like it was serious like culture shock. I have so many stories of extreme confusion of like what I expected America to be. And like even to this day, like I find out new things about this country every day. And I'm like, wait, why didn't anybody tell me this? <laughs> <laughs> what what were you expecting and what did you find? I was expecting a more functional society, um, for one thing. And so in Hong Kong, we had Starbucks that came about when I was in high school. And Starbucks in Hong Kong is great. And the best foods are like these British chicken mushroom pies. And they're so delicious. Um, these like really small, like mini pies paired with like a matcha latte. So like when I found out that I was going to the U.S. for university, I was like, oh my God. God, I'm going to the like the the mother like land of chicken and mushroom pies and matcha lattes. Like I'm gonna have a chicken and mushroom pie and a matcha latte every single day. And then of course, like you know, I go to the states. I'm like, what? Quite quite a different Starbucks experience, to be sure. So, what drew you to to study at NYU? I mean, because it seems like you could have chosen from the entire world, really, at that point. So um, when you go to international school in Hong Kong, you're generally expected to um, go to university in the US, Canada, UK, or Australia. That's like why people 
shove their kids into international schools so that they will get a name brand for an education and probably come back to Hong Kong. So like, yeah, you have to go to a name brand school. Like that's pretty much um, expected. I think it, it also means that you speak very unaccented English, which got you, I think, your first job, which before we get to America, can you tell me about your jobs in Hong Kong? Um, yeah, so my first job was I did voiceovers for Talking Toys. I love that so much. Um, what kind of toys and what do those toys say? It was toys and like exercise machines and clocks. Um, so the clock would be like one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock and so on and so forth. And the exercise machines were very encouraging, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of like, well done. <laughs> and you're go like, please go faster or like that sort of thing. Um, but the toys, I remember one was called Miss Magic Pen. So I can't remember what Miss Magic Pen had to say. Um, but I do like in one once a year, like eBay search for anything that like my voice might be attached to. Uh, I haven't found anything so far. Okay. I just had to take that little detour because that's part of being, I guess, in the British or the international school system is good diction, good for talking toys. So the the expectation was to go to a, a name brand university. And you so you ended up at NYU. Yeah. Um I'm really, really, really glad I, I went to NYU. I very nearly went to the UK, even did my interviews there. And then NYU accepted me. So I had that going for me. And you studied Complit. And then I'm curious how Complit, Renaissance Studies, which you got a master's, you're, you're like a multi-degree human, which I alluded to at the beginning of the show. What drew you deeper and deeper into the studies of Complit and Renaissance? Um, are, are you familiar with Elizabeth Wurzel's work? I am. Um, so obviously she is best known for Prozac Nation. And she also wrote this book called Bitch. And I'm probably going to bungle the subtitle, but it was something like In Defense of Strong Women or Through History. So she, she was a wonderful, wonderful writer. One of my favorite people, voices to read. Um, and I think to this day, like really affects the voice in my head when I read silently to myself. But she wrote this book, Bitch, that like romped through history and romped through text and like compared all of these different seemingly disparate pieces of information and voices and like combined them all into one text. And I was just like, how, how does one do this? Like, there is a discipline that permits this sort of like comparison. And that discipline, of course, happened to be comparative literature. And what, what drew you to get a master's and what was your specialty? Um, so I actually, I, it's, I guess it's a nice way of looking at things where you're like, oh, this girl has two masters. She's so accomplished. Whereas the reality is I quit two PhD programs and when I quit them, they gave me masters. That's a really good consolation prize. And why did you quit them? Well, first of all, I, th to do things this way, you can get two master's degrees without any student debt. So I was funded for both of my PhD programs and, you know, they paid me a, a sum of money to attend class and another, the other institution paid me a sum of money to attend class and be sort of an indentured servant in teaching classes to their undergrads and also adjuncted like all over the place to make ends meet in New York City. So 
the CUNY program has like a separate program that's kind of like a cult. It's called the Latin Greek Institute and it greatly informed like who I am as a person and how I approach academia and how I pretty much approach anything. So with the Latin Greek Institute, you learn the entire grammatical system of an ancient language in four to five weeks. And then you spend the following five weeks translating. Usually half the students leave. It's incredibly intense. I spent 10 weeks doing this for Latin and then 10 weeks doing this for Greek. And every single one of those days I cried. It is seriously the most like soul destroying way of learning a language, but it is effective. Uh, you said that it influences everything the way that you think today. Like in what way did that system or that learning affect you to this day? The idea that in order to start something new, I need to get all of the materials and I need to digest all of the materials, learn the language um, of whatever I'm getting into, whether that's restaurants or making sauces, and be very fluent before I can proceed. So let's talk about starting a food truck. I mean, here you are, you've been doing all this studying. It sounds so intense. And what in your mind made you pivot from one thing to the next? You had been doing so much teaching. I mean, does it seem like the logical next step to open Poydog and do a truck? Like, am I missing a connection or like, how did that work? I mean, food trucks were very popular back in like 2013. They were having a moment and I missed, you know, the food of Hawaii. And I mean, Everybody knows it's really hard work. It's more hard work than anybody can possibly imagine. And like at that point, at least for me in my academic career, I had gotten to the point where I'm like, I did everything that I wanted to in academia. I climbed the freaking Parthenon. Like somebody paid me to go up on the Parthenon, which like people aren't even allowed to get like within 50 meters of. I've climbed like Marcus Aurelius's tower. I have been not just under where the St. Peter's, where the popes are buried, but I have been underneath the Roman necropolis, underneath where the popes are buried. Like I have seen so much and done so much and traveled like all over the world. Like I was very, very motivated and aggressive as a grad student. And leaving academia is a terrifying thing. Um, and I think anybody who leaves academia will probably tell you that. They're like, you know, the real world is like full of people who don't value thought in the same way. And that's, of course, like extremely offensive in, on many, many, many levels. Um, but those are the sort of things that like people will tell you. They're like, no, like academia is like where it's at. Like this is where you belong. And if you're capable of this sort of like academic rigor, you like have like like a moral obligation to stay so there are like all of these forces that like were in my mind that were coming at me from like, I mean, all my friends were in academia. My entire world was academia. And to leave it and to like make that break, it's, I mean, it's like entering another dimension. It's, it's really, really, really strange. And I've like dipped in and out of like different professions and different jobs in the strange last two decades that I've had. And I've never encountered anything similar to like the mental anguish of leaving academia for the normal world. Well, um, I think this is a fantastic place for us to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear all about Poi Dog and the food truck and delicious, delicious dishes that you make and the the arc of Poi Dog from its inception to this moment today. So everyone stay with us and we'll be right back. 
This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes, are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is the extraordinary Kiki Aranita. We've heard a lot about Hong Kong, her growing up in Hawaii, and now we're going to hear about the business that she built that is where I first met her, just at a lunch counter eating the most phenomenal poke I've ever had. So Kiki, um, we were talking about your disillusionment with academia and the hard work of the food truck. What made you choose to go the route that you did when you opened your business? So um, there was a lot of thought behind this as well. Um, Originally, we wanted to open a poutine truck. It seemed like a really good idea for like, I don't know, like a couple of weeks. And then the more we thought about it, we're like, no, we should, you know, choose a larger category of food. So I am not a trained chef, of course, because I spent so much of my damn life in like libraries. I've also been raised, and I think a lot of people in Hong Kong are raised with this idea, and I still stand by it, that Chinese food is difficult um, and it requires a lot of mastery. It's funny, like I, I sort of now very recently landed myself a gig teaching home style Chinese food. And at the start of every single class, I'm like, just so you know, I am not a master Chinese chef. This takes years and years and years. I can only tell you how to do Chinese home cooking. That is where my capability like ends. But Hawaii food like incorporates a lot of those sort of like Chinese home cooking style things and many, many other ingredients that I love and miss and were at that time pretty foreign to Philadelphia. So we're like, all right, we'll do Hawaii's food. We're going to make some snacks. We're going to make spam musubi. We're going to make kalua pig, do like a poke bowl, probably a tofu poke bowl because we are too poor to buy fish at this point. And tofu is also delicious. So we started with like a, the tiniest of tiny, tiny menus the most like modest business outlook that I think we could have come up with. And did you did you create a business plan or um, did you sort of go heart first and cook and see what happened? It's me. So we made a business plan. We enrolled in the small business development center classes at Wharton and went full force. What was I thinking? As soon as I had that out of my mouth, I'm like, of course not, because of Latin and Greek training, she's going to have done everything. Yeah, no, like I bought all the books, like they're embarrassing. Like some of them are still in my basement. Like one was probably like a self-published Amazon. Well, one was definitely a self-published Amazon book, How to Build Your Own Hot Dog Cart. Yeah, that didn't turn out to be too useful, I guess. No, but um, you know, it. I'm a researcher. Like I 
felt like the need to do all of my research. So there are no texts, really. At least there were another time. Like this was before the great food truck race um, on Food Network. So nobody really knew exactly what they were doing, but they knew they liked food trucks a lot. So I just like tried to get everything, uh, all my ducks in a row that were like my, my idea of ducks are all like text based <laughs> ducks. So read a bunch of books. What was the reception like to the food truck? Poidog was one of those businesses that like demand definitely shaped. So we got very popular very, very quickly, much more so than I had expected. I didn't also didn't know this at the time. Like there was like a very large Filipino population here and we served food that like spoke like a similar language. Like we cooked with spam. We liked soy sauce a lot. We liked vinegar a lot. We liked mayo a lot. And all of this had to be served with rice. And so we were bolstered by all of these people who just really liked us. Like, I thought I was the only person from Hawaii living in Philadelphia. So I was shocked that so many people started coming to the food truck. And there is this girl, Leanne, who I hadn't seen in, I guess, 20 years. And she came up to the food truck, ordered a Spam Musubi and a side of macaroni salad. And I was just like, you know, if I saw a food truck serving Hawaii's food in the middle of Philadelphia, that's exactly what I would order. And I looked up and she looked exactly the same as she did in seventh grade. I was like, hey, I know you. For the truck and then for the subsequent brick and mortar, did you do a lot of sourcing in Hawaii itself? So for salts, seaweeds, and um, certain spices and some ingredients, I use the sourcing that I like to refer to as a dad sourcing. <laughs> Is that like suitcase sourcing? Yes. So um, yeah, I was just like, you would just go back to Hawaii. Like, and I'm also like really, really into frequent flyer miles. So having a business and then having two businesses that generated a lot of frequent flyer miles because they spent a lot of money. That basically funded our trips to Hawaii to pick up ingredients. And it was just like, it was like a really happy little like circle of circumstances. And my dad also visited pretty frequently pre-pandemic and he knew that he would have to pick up, I don't know, hundred pounds of ala'ea salt to stuff in his uh, suitcases before I would like let him in the door. <laughs> I'm interested that, um, you know, custom looks at him out the door. You know, that that's that's quite a bit of extra weight, but excellent on the salt. So tell me about that salt, because it's not a salt that I'm familiar with. Uh, so it's the red clay salt, but we used a bunch of different Hawaiian salts in different ways at the restaurant and it also in my home kitchen. Like you have the fancy, like the Molokai black uh, lava salt that is really, really, really wonderful and delicious and great on cupcakes. Um, you have like a white uh, Hawaiian salt that we used in cooking. And the red clay salt is called alaea salt. It does have like that sort of like earthiness uh, that you would expect from being tinged with red clay. But salt is really, really special in Hawaii. And that was like one of the things that we were not willing to compromise on. And my family is also from Kauai. Uh, Kauai is a place where like a, a, lot, a lot of our family gatherings were at Salt Pond Beach Park. So there are all these like salt flats that you can just like walk around. And um, there's salt that that legally you are not allowed to um, sell. You can only give it as a gift. Got it. So um, the the truck was a success and then you um, you moved to do brick and mortar. Was that a hard decision to make? Yes, it was extremely hard. Um, I didn't want to do it. We had talked about starting a restaurant um, like three years in. We really, really took our time. And something that almost nobody knows 
about me is that, so I have rheumatoid arthritis and it was really, really bad um, around the time of like going from a year or two into starting the food truck. Um, like I went through about a year of not really being able to walk and not being able to like bend my hands. Like I, I couldn't hold a knife. I couldn't sign my name on checks. Um, I basically like lost the use of my hands for like a year. Is that something one overcomes through diet or how did you address that? Or was it stress? <laughs> I think it was definitely like stress induced. I tend to put myself under a lot of pressure. I'm a little bit better at that now, but I definitely have like a workaholic gene that I definitely got from my mom that is really, really not a good thing. But yeah, I feel like stress kicked it off my body. And then like, it was just like, hey, you really have to take care of yourself. And the Penn Rheumatology uh, Department, uh, I feel like they saved my life. But I also did other, th like I threw everything at it, switched so many things out of in and out of my diet to see if anything affected my joints, got my knees drained periodically of fluids. Um, I did acupuncture, I did everything, like took a billion supplements and it's actually only like a year and a half, not even that I think that I've been off medication. And I also thought that like, I'd have to move back to Hong Kong because I have free health insurance in Hong Kong because I'm from there and it's not America. And there were all these other things going on and you can't really run a food truck with rheumatoid arthritis, <laughs> but if you have a staff, they can do this, like they can do like the careful cutting of the foods for you. Um, so like if you just train them to do things a certain way, you can produce a lot more food than like two people on a food truck, one of which can't move her hands. Definitely an improvement there. So you you resisted the the move to bricks and mortar, but ended up deciding it was the right thing to do. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, I had a, a staff that like, I'm still very, very proud of. I really I enjoyed going into work. And I think a lot of people who worked at Poydog did as well. And they're still friends. And we had something really good. Um, we had like a supportive community and we announced our closing in July. Um I miss it a lot. I don't miss it enough to reopen in a post-pandemic world if we ever get to a post-pandemic world, but um, now I make sauce. <laughs> and why is it that you wouldn't, in a post-pandemic world, choose to open again? I mean, I think about all the things that I had to go through in order to open. Like, obviously, the health department checks and um, insurance, and I worried every single day that the restaurant was open. Like, I feel like I could never fully relax like I had staff that I trusted, I had managers that I trusted, but there were just like so many disasters that were waiting to happen that could have happened. Like thankfully it didn't happen, like no fires or anything, but it always felt like there was going to be a fire to put out. I don't want to live with that, that anxiety when there is also the threat of a pandemic. Right. And, and you, I mean, the pandemic will be resolved, but I think it shows us there's so many potential challenges lurking. And of course the industry itself is such a challenge. It just the restaurant industry. And there were other reasons that I think that you started Poi Dog, right? I mean, you, you've always been interested in showcasing sort of underrepresented voices, and this was one way to do it. Is that accurate? Yes, yeah, that's 100% accurate. I love Hawaii's food because it's so often open-minded. It always wants to like incorporate new things and ideas and Chinese food. Like I just, I love seeing like a dish that derived from like lived experience from people who had to like deal with trying to recreate a food that they missed 
in a totally different culture with like totally different ingredients available to them. And then it becomes its own thing. And I love tracing back how it got there. It's also interesting because I think it connects to something that I've heard you talk about before, which is this notion of homesickness and the way in which food can address, allay, or maybe even aggravate a sense of homesickness. Yes. And then when it comes to Hawaii, like it's like linear homesickness. Like I... I miss Hawaii. So if I make a spam musubi, I am transported home and I can share this musubi because every can of spam is, is going to give you nine slices of spam and then you can make nine musubis and you can't eat nine musubi in like one sitting. So you have to share. And then like it becomes like a way of like addressing like very like head on and directly your homesickness. When it comes to the other side, it's a lot more nebulous. Like Hong Kong was always a place where restaurants came and went very, very quickly, where a lot of the foods of my youth don't exist anymore. And in that sense, I get um, very, very sad because I also then think about like the home that I knew as a child doesn't exist anymore. The freedoms that we had when I was a kid, like they don't exist anymore. And I will never be able to return back to like the non-country of my youth. So when I make those foods, that's the kind of thing that we're like, it only exists if I make it here right now. Right. That's almost an irreconcilable homesickness because that home is only on the plate or in your mind. It isn't in a place anymore, which I guess there's there's a beauty to it because it's still contained within you and within your hands to recreate, but it's harder to share. Um, and you've, you've talked in other interviews about this notion of grief that's pervaded certain elements of your life. And I'm just wondering, like, what the grief here with Poi Dog felt like and how that related to what you talk about as sort of the landscape of grief. Poi Dog was a very public grief that like, I, I feel like I have to constantly reiterate that it's not just mine. Like when we announced that we were closing, the amount of messages that I got from all over the country, like I was shocked. Like I had no conception of how Poidog had affected other people's lives. But I was hearing from people who had met their spouses at this like little restaurant that existed for only like three years in Philadelphia and people who had met them, their spouses at the truck or we catered their weddings. Like, I guess I was so focused on like, like running things like day by day or like month by month that I didn't really look back. I wrote like two obituaries for the restaurant. Um, one was for an inquirer and one of course was for your old stomping ground. And um, on the alternate title that I had given Food and Wine, and I'm still a little bit sad that they didn't use the title that I preferred, which was, um, I blacked out for two weeks and now I'm coming too. Mm, wow. I just can imagine that. It's an out-of-body experience. I mean, it's a very different kind of grief. Like it's the Poi Dog one is like one I can really, really now like very well like, address. And I think it's one that like a lot of people are going to have to address because like our lives are going to be different going forward. We're not going to be able to have the same security of like spending time with people in intimate spaces that we did before. Like I spent four pandemics in Hong Kong. I know what the trauma from SARS feels like. I'm like very, very much aware of it. Like we're all going to be different after this and losing Poi Dog is just one aspect of it. So um, I'm really excited about a bunch of the things that you've pivoted to. Poi Dog, because it really is so 
authentic to you and also resonated so much with others, I love how you've taken it and you've turned to teaching and turned to sauces. And it's also funny because you were saying like you're not a trained cook. Um, I'd love to hear how you decided to do the couple of sauces and just share those flavors with people who are listening. I mean, the sauces came about sort of happenstance and the, a lot of it is because of you. Like, I still want to like address this idea of like, like a Poi Dog universe based magazine that's very, very inclusive and um, celebrates like underrepresented cuisines like that. I feel like that is like my life's work. But you also talked some sense into me <laughs> a few months ago about like having something to sell and like that thought lingered with me for a long time until I linked back up with my friends at Burlap and Barrel and had like a brainstorming session with my friend Jennifer Yu at um, Gotham Grove. And they basically planted ideas in my head and coached me into making this reality. And I'm very, very far away from like mass producing these things, but Right now, like I'm making something that I'm really proud of and that people seem to really like. And that's like the current moment um, in time with these things. And we'll see if it grows into something else. Well, let's talk about what the, what the two sauces are. The, do you want maybe talk about the lavender ponzu? Yes. So the Maui lavender ponzu, that is my creation. Like I was coming up with recipes, came up with this one, really liked it was on the Poidog special events menu in various dishes for a while. And the chili pepper water is not something that I invented at all. Like it's a traditional condiment that you see everywhere in Hawaii. However, I also, thanks to you and uh, your introductions to other people who are now fairly influential in my life, it seems like more people want me to develop more sauces. So I'm continuing to test out recipes and seeing how they can be converted into manufacturing formulas. So this is a project that um, might grow significantly, I hope. One of the beautiful things is that you're trying a few different things, right? I mean, you're creating these sauces for which I think there will be a very genuine demand. There already is a demand. I mean, you're already selling out, selling off of shelves. You're also exploring other things. Like it would be amazing to do that magazine. And it's also great that you're teaching. I was curious because you did spend so much time doing the adjunct teaching when you were studying. How does it feel to be a teacher in the realm of recipes and food? So like, it's, it's a funny thing because like, I'm not a trained chef at all, but I am a trained teacher. So like, when it comes to like breaking down complex methods or thoughts, like I can do that or like giving background to um, whatever I might be explaining like that, that I have utmost confidence in my ability to do with sauces. I was just like, oh my gosh, there's so much to learn. I'm like playing catch up. But when it comes to like teaching, like I'm teaching fairly simple dishes, like one dish at a time per class. But I am bringing all the background to the table. I'm like telling you like the etymology of the dish, the evolving etymologies of like different names for the dish. I'm telling you like how it's served in like different cultures, how I grew up with it. Like you're getting like the whole like scholarly look at how I approach cooking. It's always a good place to arrive. And I often feel, you know, I, when I left food and wine, I was like, I don't want to do anything that I've ever done before. And that was really great. But it also meant that I was never doing anything 
that I knew how to do. <laughs> like, and when I created a zine for Speaking Broadly, which got put off track by COVID, it was just so delightful to be doing something that I actually knew how to do. <laughs> so every once in a while, it's, it's nice to touch base with your own expertise. Um, I, I This is sort of the flip side of the coin because we're talking about, you know, expertise and education and all that. But I am completely obsessed with your crocheting. And how in the world did you get drawn into crocheting? I mean, you're so good. I mean, I cannot wait for listeners to hear this and go like, oh, let me Google, you know, Kiki's crocheting. It's amazing. I came to crochet very, very recently. I'm my best friend, Mel, who has been my best friend since like NYU. She picked up a crochet needle um, maybe three years ago, decided to crochet like the largest blanket of all time, and then had leftover yarn from the largest blanket of all, all time, came over, taught me how to make a dog scarf. And I went from dog scarf to dark, dog sweaters. And it was actually really fun. Like for like the dog sweaters, I was crocheting dog sweaters for like a lot of like dogs of chefs around town. Um, but I didn't want to take money from them. So I'm, I would be like, all right, I'll make your dog a sweater, but you can't pay me. So you have to figure out something else that will make you feel okay to accept the sweater. So yeah, I started getting like dinners and, um, like I got a whole pork belly once. And then I started making bunnies over quarantine. I would, did like this matryoshka set of bunnies that like, I think I had like 12 bunnies that like fit, like it was started with a small one and then another one that was bigger and then another one that was bigger. So like they fit into each other. Oh my goodness. I am crying over here. That is, um, is there a woman in the world of hospitality who you feel more people need to know about? There are two. The people that I talk to on a daily basis are very, very impressive women in hospitality. Some people are household names, and some people should be household names. Jennifer Jeon Yu should be a household name. She is the driving force behind Gotham Grove, and she's just so deeply knowledgeable and caring about all of these different small producers in Korea and in Iceland and from Jordan. So like, just like being in contact with her on a really regular basis, like you just learn so much from her world. And the other person is this, the wonderful Emma Rooney, who nobody knows, except that a lot of people might know her as the salmon girl. So the way that Jen can talk about vinegars and oils. Emma can talk about salmon. So uh, she was the salmon specialist at Schooner Bay Salmon um, up until recently. She now has a new job. Um, Emma can give long lectures on salmon. And I know this because every single time she came to Poydog, like we would even, I would even book her for like salmon training sessions um, with my staff where she would bring in a fish, talk about every single aspect of the fish, what to look for in a fish. And she um, is so, so, so knowledgeable. That's fantastic. I'm so excited to have been able to share your story with the listeners today. And um, you guys, I suggest all of you go find Poydog products. Perhaps you'll try the sauces now and perhaps in the future there will be even more. I know that we'll be seeing a lot more from you, Kiki, whether it's in art, in words, in sauces, 
because your your taste and your vision and your ability to execute are unparalleled. So thank you so much for joining me. I really, really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much. Not just for this, but for everything. All right. Um, take care. And everybody who's listening, have a really great week. And I'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.